0: 90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science.
1: Hey, Shannon, how are you?
0: <laughs> I'm doing great. How about you? <laughs> I mean, do you have electricity? Like, has all the snow melted around your house? Like,
1: <laughs> So we had at the airport that I've been learning to fly at a 92-degree Temperature difference from the high on Tuesday compared to the low the previous Tuesday.
0: That's amazing. Yes. Yeah, That's just, that's amazing. Mm -hmm.
1: We had rolling blackouts here, which is uh, somewhat ironic because our servers generate hazard maps for things like utilities.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tee hee. Yep. Uh,
1: So... Us and most other businesses around us were closed all of last week.
0: Yeah. It was rough, man. It was rough. My kids didn't leave the house. I didn't leave the house for like 10 days. And even in quarantine, I don't know if I've not left the house. (laughs) You know? so um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of bird watching. I will say that it was rather I don't know, soul soothing. And now I'm paying for it now that it's 60 degrees outside again, and it seems like everything is hustle, hustle, hustle to make up for it now.
1: Yeah, everybody that didn't have power now has it and is sending all those emails that they wrote.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Your stuff should just not work. That's all I'm saying. Um, so we had
1: a, um, <laughs> we had a little message. We cut over to a new website for the company this week. Uh, which was super exciting because something we've been meaning to do for a long time. And while I was stuck at home, that's some one of the things that I worked on. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> it was great because in that process, our email got disconnected. Uh, so late one night, when the cutover happened, uh, the email link got severed, and emails that were getting sent to anyone at lemangeophysical.com were just going off into Never Neverland. <laughs> <laughs> okay and the way i knew it is because i woke up in the morning set up looked at my phone and saw zero new emails and immediately my first reaction was something is horribly wrong
0: <laughs>
1: because that's never once happened
0: oh uh, instead of being able to revel in it because <laughs> you knew it wasn't true <laughs> uh-huh. uh, that stinks
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> hmm.
0: yeah i hear you um yeah, it's I don't know, it's been surreal, right? Like It has.
1: Yeah.
0: It really has been. We'll definitely have to lean on some meteorologists to uh, explain stuff to us once everyone's recovered.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I will say that um the building that we both grew up in, um and by that I mean the energy center at OU did not fare very well. <laughs> Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, there's always a lot of problems when stuff freezes. I know a lot of people had problems with their houses, but um, our building notoriously leaks anyway. And I got, in the midst of the storm, I got a a text from one of my TAs, and he said, "Uh, should I tell someone about this? And... (laughs) The third floor is the big, fancy floor that's, like, very open. It's the plaza level, we call it. So it's, like, two stories tall, right? And it's ringed around by glass. And on the outside, two entire panes of glass, and, I mean, this is, like, double stories. It's, like, you know, 20 foot tall, are just covered in maybe a foot of ice. That's fairly clearly, like, coming from the floor above it, yeah. Yeah. I said, yeah, yeah, you probably should. And, um, so our computer labs are on that level. They're destroyed. Like all the ceiling tiles had fallen out and he had pictures of like water flowing down the stairwells, mm-hmm. our library, all the ceiling tiles fell out of the library, like all over the books and it's all closed and Yeah. <laughs>
1: oh man yeah Uh that anytime was any severe weather that building never fared well except for wind
0: it yeah exactly well now when it's really windy the elevators get stuck
1: (laughs) all right so uh so yeah and it just doesn't fare well in severe weather it
0: doesn't fare well at all yeah and so monday i think my office was 50 i think it was 60 outside so (laughs) yeah it was it's a mess but you know whatever we move on yeah
1: well we thought this week that we would talk about our favorite sedimentary structures (laughs) and this is clearly something that you picked out because said structure is never something that i would voluntarily talk about
0: i love them so much though um this is absolutely like a quiz i give every year too uh (laughs) i always think it's funny when I have an idea. So I was sitting there and I'm like, you know, I I I have to come up with some ideas for the podcast, you know, what are we gonna do? And I always have to Google our website to see if we've done it. <laughs> and I'm oh, always yes. surprised when we haven't done things. I'm like, really? In six years I didn't think about this. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah, I'm really shocked at this. And I will say, well, whatever. I'll say it when we get to yours. Uh, (laughs) I think it's really fun. And it all centers around my weird obsession with fluid dynamics now and Hulstrom's diagram. And it's one of my favorite diagrams to, like, teach and think about. And I'm a nerd like that. I looked up, so when I was going through this, I'm like... I want to make sure I get some good said structures, make sure I'm not forgetting anything when I make my list. And I pulled down six sedimentary books, right? So textbooks that were about said rocks or textbooks about fluid flow or whatever. And, you know, there's little sticky notes throughout them, sticking out of the pages. And every single one of them had a sticky note on the Hulstrom's diagram page. (laughs) (laughs) Every single one. (laughs) I'm like, I just love this graph.
1: So, Hillstrom's diagram, on the okay. x-axis, you have particle size going from clay to boulder.
0: Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And on the y-axis, you have velocity going from low to high.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: And, and so this is what happens to a something of a certain grain size when it's in a river going at a certain speed. Does it move? Does it get eroded does it fall out does it what happens
0: and this isn't just a line and actually if you wanted to look this up you can look up hulstrom's diagram which is h j u l strum (laughs) um or you can look up hulstrom's curve because that's what it's frequently called so it's not a curve and it's not as easy as you would think um this is one of the things that i do like to actually have one of those quizzes where you say what do you think this is going to be oh, hey, look, this is what the empirical data are about this phenomenon. Because you would just think that as stuff gets bigger, you need a higher velocity to pick it up. Period. Right? You would think. That's what it seems like. Yes, you would think. But it's not quite like that.
1: And, yeah, yeah, I mean, there are some linear parts. There's some nonlinear parts. It's sort of (laughs) like, to me, when you're looking at a, a free energy diagram, you know, for a reaction or, or something like that, and you're like, huh, okay, didn't quite expect that, but it makes yeah. sense now.
0: <laughs> right, like like the kicker for me and for explaining it too is that obviously if you have flowing water, right, the faster it's flowing, the bigger chunks it can pick up. Yes, okay, right. that's true, that is true. But actually the super small chunks are just as hard to pick up and move as the large particles.
1: Yeah, they can get bound down into each other and it's hard for water to get in between them because they pack so tightly.
0: Right, exactly. And you don't think about that. And I think that's very interesting because it's not like it's it's not perfectly symmetrical, but I mean it's sort of it's pretty close to it. So, in order to pick up a pebble, you need you actually need less velocity than to pick up some of the tiniest clay particles. So like 0.001 to 0.01 sizes of particles are just as hard to pick up as something that's like 10 millimeters across. Right. And that's very interesting to me. I don't know, you just not... It doesn't seem like that is intuitive until you, you have to actually dig in <laughs> to, to the, the physics of sediments moving in water or air to understand it.
1: Now, the line between transport and deposition is pretty much linear for all realistically sized things.
0: Right, once you get into like car size
1: it of. does roll off somewhere around Cobble or Boulder, but that's a catastrophic flood stage at that point.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that makes sense, right? Yeah.
1: But what I like is that means you get this transport region, that center region, gets squeezed. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to move anything bigger than sand for a very long distance. You have to have just the right flow regime to do it. Yeah. So things smaller than sand, they tend to move and keep moving. Things bigger than sand, they tend to not move much and once they get somewhere to stay there.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Exactly right. And it is really really narrow. Um and that's really It's interesting when you go out to start to look at rocks and deposits. And, I mean, there's still a lot of gravel-sized stuff that gets moved around. And so, you know, that very specific set of conditions gets met a lot of times because it still gets moved around. And I think that said structures and thinking about Hulstrom's diagram is so interesting to me because it's like a 2D visualization And just, you know, a snapshot of the visualization of the actual process. And the process part is what's so interesting. So that's the outcome, or you can look at this Hulstin's diagram and predict stuff, but the processes involved in it are seen directly in, like, these said structures. Just the fact that that layer of pebbles is there, you know instantly, if you've memorized Hulstin's diagram, as I push my glasses up my nose, <laughs> you know instantly like what the conditions were in depositing that. And I think that's really neat.
1: Right. And this results in one of your very favorite sedimentary structures.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Which is. Uh-huh. The graded bedding, is this what you're talking about? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so when I sat down to write my favorite structures, uh Graded bedding gets overlooked because it seems kind of boring, but it is, just like John said, it's sort of my favorite because it shows this process. And so what is graded bedding? Uh, It's not like road grading or anything like that. But when you have stuff that's getting laid down and deposited, graded bedding is where you have the big stuff on the bottom And then the grain size progressively gets smaller as you go up in terms of time and in terms of, you know, the direction of the bedding. So it's coarse on the bottom and really fine on the top. And that whole package represents what we would call a graded bed.
1: Which means that you had to be getting slower and slower, dropping finer and finer things, which means you're at a lower energy state, so you're either further from the headwater or you're at a lower grade from the headwater, which can tell you all kinds of things about is a delta moving here, is evulsion happening, what's actually happening physically in exactly. the system that's long been, since been gone.
0: Yeah, so you can see this rock, and there's a really cool place that we go for part of our field camp. And I mean, this rock's 100 million years old, and it has these successions of graded beds just cycle after cycle after cycle of graded beds and it's like you can imagine what the flow regime which is what we call you know the hydraulic nature of this river or whatever system it is that you're looking at like you can imagine the flow regime from 100 million years ago because there's only one way to get that sort of deposition and that's so neat to me that you can envision the process so instantly by looking at this said structure and that change from the high energy that's needed to move the big stuff as the flow wanes down and you get all the small stuff settling out is usually associated, it's most frequently associated and captured uh, along with stuff like turbidity currents. Right. Yeah. So those big offshore, you know, massively moving density currents we'd call that too right so there are these high speed currents and as that high speed current travels down you know maybe a continental shelf right or down some sort of canyon in the ocean it speeds up it's traveling along the bottom and as it starts to slow down it starts depositing in that order big stuff then smaller 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 stuff and I just, that's really cool. And hopefully in a turbidite sequence, you capture like each one of those little successions going from boulders all the way back down into clay. And there's a whole section of sedimentary geology that's devoted just to studying those things, which are named by a guy named Bauma. They're called Balma sequences, but they're just those graded bedding associated with these catastrophic, um, t- not tsunami, but catastrophic turbidity current events and
1: that's very right. interesting
0: yeah so yeah graded bedding's fun you can also get reverse graded bedding
1: which i would assume is fine to course uh yes <laughs> so the opposite you're going from a low energy to a high energy state
0: right yeah exactly um and that is sort of harder to so you've got these coarsening upward beds and if you're thinking from you know low energy to high energy That seems like it's harder to capture, right? You think that you would erode that fine stuff, which is true. So, reverse grading is pretty uncommon. Um, You do see it in some Aeolian processes. So, not water as a fluid, but air as a fluid. And so, you see it in some times around, like sand dune type environments or debris flows so where you've got a whole bunch of stuff that's flowing down the side of a mountain and just the specific flow regime of that debris flow in some areas can create this weird reverse graded beds but they're much more uncommon than just regular graded bedding
1: oh yeah for sure
0: yeah so I like graded beds. I think they're overlooked as a really cool sed structure.
1: All right. I remember all the sed pet field trips and things talking about, is this fighting or coarsening upward?
0: Oh, and like, I still have a hard time when you think about trying to answer that. That's actually really hard to do. It is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, anyway. Your number one one is one that I wanted... I was going to put this, (laughs) and then I left it for you. I just want you to know that I left this for you, because I knew this was not your thing, and this one you would want.
1: (laughs) Well, I appreciate it.
0: You're welcome.
1: (laughs) My number one is the Anti-Dune.
0: Oh, so cool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which is... Sort of what it sounds like. It's, it's a dune <laughs> that moves in the cool. wrong direction.
0: <laughs> I was thinking of it like it's a dune that's too cool to be a dune. It's an anti-dune. Right. <laughs> um, and how do you identify these in the sedimentary record, though? Because you don't see the dunes moving in the record. So how do you know it's an anti-dune?
1: You have to know something about the flow that was happening. Yeah. And the flow regime.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because you only get anti dunes in like rip roar and water.
1: Yeah. So we're going to talk about what qualifies as rip roar and (laughs) water with with my next one. Because we could math that.
0: Yeah, we sure can. (laughs) And we have a flume at OU. You did this flume lab, right? Um, Where you create these anti dunes. And they are so. Cool to watch, and when we say rip roaring, that doesn't mean deep necessarily.
1: No, in Which fact, is, shallow's better. It a is times.
0: better. <laughs> so I'll let you math it out. Go ahead. <laughs>
1: right. Um, so these anti dunes, instead of having a uh, a breaking, uh, you know, in the direction of motion, or your typical dune form of you've got wind you know let's say wind instead of water uh, coming up and then hitting a crest and dropping material these are moving against the direction flow and they are the stage right after one of my other favorite structures i'm going to combine two into one here which is the standing wave
0: Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, that's Uh, the most fun
1: because if you've seen this in little shallow rivers or something, you see waves in the surface of the water that look like, you know, water wants to be flat. But these waves just stay there. They don't move as the water is flowing over the base. And that's because it's in a particular flow regime where that standing wave is stable. It's sort of like in the, uh, in the Earth atmospheric system, right? You've got this Rossby number. Mm-hmm. And if you've got... A lower Rossby number, weather moves in one direction. If it's about four, everything stays where it is. And if mm-hmm. it's bigger, you get retrograde weather. So it's sort of like that with dunes. You can get uh, dune traditional dune formation, then you can get standing waves. then you can get anti-dune formation.
0: I love it. Airs of fluid. <laughs> Airs a fluid. It's all the same physics. <laughs>
1: And uh, we did get an email from a listener asking us to talk more about our atmosphere to geology comparisons. Oh. And we're going to do that.
0: Well, this is a perfect one, too, though. <laughs> it is. Uh,
1: and so, so that, that flume experiment that you talked about, there is, and I will try to link this in the show notes, uh, I put a YouTube video up of doing that when it happened.
0: Oh, really? Nice. Yes. So you can
1: see all of these different bed forms in this YouTube video.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: Um, I, I will not use last names, but you'll remember Dustin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's in it. He was my lab partner for this.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. So that is out there. And as a short side note, you may remember in the last couple of weeks, we said that we were trying to figure out why our website is not showing the new podcasts so you can see things like show notes
0: Uh, (laughs) yes
1: (laughs) the podcast host doesn't know either and we're not talking
0: about me we're talking about the actual (laughs) host of the (laughs) the we spent over (laughs) a
1: week going back and forth with the hosting company and the last email we got was hmm we don't know sorry (laughs) Which was not encouraging, so we're going to take some more drastic steps to try to get that fixed here in the next week or so. Yeah. Uh, But just so you know, we know it still doesn't work. Please don't email to tell us it still doesn't work. It's coming. Uh, (laughs) It's coming, and thus far, the host has been unable to figure out why it's not working.
0: (laughs) I love it. Not me, the host. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I clearly don't know why. (laughs) But anyway, so...
1: That's enough about anti dunes and dunes.
0: I mean, it's not enough. There's you can't talk about these enough. <laughs>
1: my my <laughs> next thing will be talking about the math behind them, but I want to let you get to your next yeah. One.
0: Well, I well something to say about anti dunes though, and even standing waves. While well, these are things that you can clearly see when you're out and about, especially um, one of the coolest places to see anti dunes. Is And I actually haven't seen this. I've only seen my student spring bag videos from it. Um, Is there in the springtime, if you go to Great Sand Dunes National Park, which is out by Walsenburg in Colorado, there's a big flat area and the snow melt comes down. And so there's this very shallow, it's only like two inches, three, five inches deep stream. And it runs so quickly, but it's just full of anti-dunes. So it's got anti-dunes, and then it has these standing waves in it. But the thing about them is they're actually really hard to capture in the sedimentary record. So they're easy to see in these natural laboratories or in these flume experiments that we're talking about. But they're hard to preserve because they're this upper flow regime, so it means the velocity is going pretty fast. And so once you start to lower the velocity of whatever's happening, the little river starts to dry up or whatever, these basically get eroded. You could look on Heelstrom's diagram and see why. Um, And so it's really hard to preserve them in the rock record, but they happen frequently if you're watching a system.
1: Right. Yeah. And, I mean, we're talking about in small streams, like order minutes.
0: Yeah hmm yep that's right that's really cool um they make so like surfing these standing waves or like if you're a kayaker or anything like that you probably know the tricks of how to like ride a standing wave because there's a way that you want to do that <laughs> in right. a kayak and or in like one of these you know boogie boards that people go out And do too, and frequently, and there's some towns around in Colorado that have like built standing waves into the river for the people that are, you know, motoring along the river and want to play on standing waves. And I always think that's really funny.
1: Yeah. And the engineers always go, it's not going to last. It's going to (laughs) get eroded. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, exactly. For the math reasons that you will talk about. After we talk about hummockery cross stratification.
1: All right, so what is hummocky cross-stratification?
0: You should probably just Google it. Um, (laughs) So I really like cross-stratification in general, and so these are the wavy lines that you would see in sedimentary rocks. But I picked hummocky cross-stratification because it's the flow regime that it happens in is really weird. And actually people argue about how it forms and so what it looks like crossbeds if you think about looking at a sand dune because that's the easiest those are the biggest crossbeds they're those lines that are like diagonal to the surface and they'll go in different directions based on which direction the wind is flowing right and so hummocky cross stratification it usually forms in sort of finer sediments and it's these really low angle swoopy lines all right, and they kind of intersect each other, so it's just like I'm trying to think of if you if you ski, and you think about what the mogul hill looks like, it looks like moguls. So some of them are bumps, and some of them are holes, and it's like moguls stacked on top of moguls, stopped on top of sta- stacked on top of moguls, is what a yeah. McCre cross strait looks like.
1: Yeah, that's a good description.
0: Oh, I was gonna get it somehow. I'm like, how do you describe this on the radio? every piece of me wants to draw this on a piece of paper and I can't do it um yeah so that's what they look like and what cross stratification usually tells us when we're talking about flowing water or air is it tells us the direction like the predominant direction that the fluid is coming from but when you're cross stratification is hummocky it looks like it's coming from all directions which is kind of where hummocky cross stratification lives is in very turbulent flow and it's so for example if you're thinking about the beach and as you go further out into the ocean it starts to get it's kind of a ramp down right it starts to get deeper and deeper And there's a point there along like the mid part of that ramp. And especially if you have a storm or really turbulent flow, the sediments start to get mixed around in a bunch of different directions. It's kind of the point right before waves start to break because you have okay. all that it, you have all that wave action but then you've got a lot of backwash because the waves are breaking and so it's it has to do with the fact that you've got you know waves flow in, and then they break, and you're breaking up sort of the oscillations that are creating the waves, and within that part where it breaks, you get a lot of backwash, and that backwash is what creates the hummocky cross strat, where it looks like two different flow directions, because there really are two different flow directions. Like, overall, the waves are going forward, but there's a lot of sloshing in that area, and that's kind of where hummocky cross strat lives.
1: And, you know, we talk about all these as 2D things, but they're really all 3D, yeah because depending on the angle the wave's coming in and gravity, the slope, you can have you know a wave come in one way and then go out another and transport material one direction along a coastline. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get some pretty interesting three d bed forms, but right. we generally only see them in road cuts so we don't get the full picture
0: <laughs> right exactly, and so I think that's why. There's been in the literature, and this is not something that I study, so I apologize if I'm missing some seminal paper. Um, But I do know that, like, there's still a lot, and I'm talking about, like, in the last 10, 15 years, of question about how hummocky cross strat forms. And there's lots of arguments about it. So, you know, was it, like, an anadune? Is it liquefaction happening in this part of, like, the ramp? That creates the convoluted bedding. Um, There's been stuff saying that it's related just to turbidites and turbidity currents. And so there's a lot of fighting. (laughs) I don't know how contentious it is about how it forms. But definitely it has to do with like oscillation of the water column in a not a constant bidirectional flow, but sort of like a turbulent bidirectional flow. And, well, and I think
1: that's really cool. Dare I say, too, this is also how we might just perceive it based on how we cut the section.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so it, it is one thing that sets it apart from bi-directional flow in general is that it does look more convoluted. Like if you have beaches where you got water coming in, water going out, water coming in, water going out, that creates a very sort of tabular set of cross stratification you know you've got bi-directional flow so you got one set pointed one way one set pointed another and repeat and so the hammocky ones are at very low angles and that's what sets them apart and probably what got them identified as their own thing anyway so they're much lower angle than normal bi-directional flow but john's exactly right like you really need to see it in 3d to see to basically visualize the whole mogul part <laughs> right. of it. And yeah, they're really beautiful. They're real odd. They represent a very strange and still questionable part of the flow regime.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So tell us why.
1: <laughs> the fruit number.
0: I'm going to argue that that's not a said structure. <laughs> but I, It's I- as
1: close as I'm going to get. I know, I know.
0: I had to hand you anti-dunes, and I'll let you talk about this, too. (laughs) All
1: right, so the fruit number is my favorite kind of number because it's dimensionless.
0: I thought it was because fruits were really cool
1: dudes. (laughs) All right, so this is a dimensionless number that, now this is going to sound like meteorology, is the ratio of inertial to gravitational forces.
0: Yep, sure does.
1: All right. So it's pretty close to things like inertial to non-inertial forces, which really get you deeper into fluid mechanics, Mm -hmm. but inertial to gravitational. So the fruit number is the velocity of the fluid divided by the square root of gravity times the hydraulic depth, which is the cross-sectional area of flow divided by the width at the top.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs)
1: Yeah, so V over root GD. All right.
0: Now, the fruit number,
1: of course, has some critical thresholds. Mm -hmm. And since it's a dimensionless ratio, 1 is going to be the threshold we look for. Right. 1 is critical flow. Greater than 1 is supercritical, which is really fast. Mm -hmm. Less than 1 is subcritical, or slow. So that means the denominator in subcritical, the inertia, the willingness of the particles to move, is small or well it's large yeah compared to the gravity so they're not very willing to move mm-hmm. the flow is slow they're gonna sit there yeah so this and... fruit number tells you what kind of bed forms you're gonna get
0: mm-hmm. i love it i approach it from looking at the bed forms and figuring it out and you're like no nah, i'm gonna math it out first
1: <laughs> so <laughs> the other thing that you can think about so that that denominator, that root GD, that is the speed of a wave on the surface of the water relative to the speed of the water. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at, say, um, some ripples, are they standing in place, or are they migrating downstream or upstream? Mm -hmm. And that relative velocity is important and that's what that base number is that number is called wave celerity i
0: don't know if i've ever talked about wave celerity very much
1: yeah so it's the relative speed of the wave to the medium that it's made of or moving in
0: Mm. and so that would i mean that sounds like meteorology to me Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, we got jet stream written all over this, right?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. So <laughs> um, in subcritical flow, you're dominated by inertia, which means that downstream is what's controlling the process. Right. In supercritical flow, upstream is what's controlling the process. Mm-hmm. So take a stick and put it in a flowing river or something. You know, stick it down in there. So you're going to get this V of disturbance on the surface, right? Right. Okay. If it's subcritical, remember it's controlled by downstream. So that means that the disturbances from that stick are going to appear upstream of the stick. Wow. So... Critical, you'll have things at the stick at 45 degrees out. That'll be your V. Mm
0: -hmm. Yep.
1: Supercritical flow, it's controlled by the upstream. So there's no disturbance ahead of the stick. And Vs behind the stick downstream that have a very tiny angle. So that's the cheap way to determine flow regime.
0: See, look how smart all your four-year-olds are. Exactly. (laughs) Because they've observed all of this before.
1: (laughs) Now, fruit number is actually critically important to a very practical application.
0: Mm, Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How our sinks work? Boats. (laughs) There you go. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh So
1: your boat is a disturbance moving through the water. Yeah. The wavelength of waves on the surface of the water relative to the length of your boat is very important.
0: Especially if you're a kayaker next to it.
1: And that is fruit number. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You are inertial.
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: <laughs> so if the wavelength is a lot smaller than your boat, no big deal. If the wavelength is a lot longer than your boat, no big deal. If the wavelength is the is- length of your boat...
0: Is your boat <laughs> problem? <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> sure is. <clears throat> yeah. Mm-hmm. I would, in my mind, when you gave that example, I've just imagined you capsizing and yelling about the Fruit number to some. <laughs>
1: <laughs> More like splitting in half. Uh,
0: yeah. Okay. That's true.
1: <laughs> uh, but if you really want to dig into the math, on this um i mean it's got applications in chemical engineering when you're stirring tanks um it's been modified for situations where maybe you're not dealing with water (laughs) um like you can do density correction on it Uh, there's a bunch of approximations that you can make or you can make no approximations and start looking at like a a catchy momentum version of it or really go all out and go full meteorology and look at the navier stokes equation (laughs) though with actual fluid you get to make sure it's incompressible yeah Mm -hmm. which is nice because that eliminates some complication
0: is the hard part yeah (laughs) <laughs> man i haven't thought about that in a long time don't get this confused with the reynolds number that's a separate thing that i think we've actually already talked about on the show
1: yes we have it's another one of those dimensionless numbers uh so reynolds number pecklet number fruit number uh gosh i'm forgetting some probably <laughs> fluid dynamics is full of them <laughs>
0: uh, uh, uh. yes um
1: also Fascinatingly enough, I did not know this until I was researching for the show. <laughs> have you ever heard of the walking fruit number?
0: <laughs> I think I caught that last year. It was terrible.
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> oh, no, I have not.
1: <laughs> uh, so apparently it is used by the biology community to describe gait patterns.
0: We have talked about this on this show. I'm surprised we haven't run into this.
1: Yeah. Huh. Okay. So it's the ratio of centripetal force around the center of motion. Okay. uh, And the weight of the animal. Hmm. So big animal versus the centripetal force that it pivots on uh, to determine, you know, is it taking fast little steps or long big steps?
0: Yeah. Wow. Seems like dinosaur people would, you know, paleontologists, it seems like they would talk about this a lot too.
1: Yeah, and then you can start instead of like, is it supercritical or subcritical? You can start saying, is it is it asymmetric gates, like gallops, mm-hmm. or are they symmetric gates?
0: Like, wow, like trots. Hmm. Yeah, that is very interesting, and also I guess a lot of like when you're walking to running transition is a thing, too. So now this is really interesting to me to think about because when we had 20 inches of snow on the ground here, I did a lot of walking around in the yard and identifying the tracks, right? Yeah. (laughs) Because that was really fun, and that was really interesting because we have a lot of rabbits around here, especially since my poor puppy dog passed away. So they've moved in, and there were so... Many different bunny tracks, and they were just these huge hops that this bunny was taking, which is not what I've ever seen them do. And so it was very interesting to think about this food number, the food walking number, when thinking about how the rabbit was traveling in the snow versus not in the snow.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks. And another
1: word, the last word you might hear associated with it is the word hydraulic jump.
0: Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's bad. <laughs>
1: Well, it's where the fruit numbers one, in your transition, it's that awkward running to walking, uh,
0: <laughs> which can tear up dams, but we can
1: talk about right that later. <laughs> exactly. So it's where you go from that nice, uh, I don't want to say laminar because that's not technically right, but right it, that nice fast, just bed scouring supercritical flow <laughs> mm-hmm. to the slower. It, it's that standing wave period,
0: right. Yeah, and it can rip apart dams if it happens, but I think so we can exactly. talk about that. Yeah. yeah, Very interesting. Cool. Well, I knew that your definition of favorite said structures would be much different than mine, so that was that was good.
1: <laughs> mine involved a square root.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'll bring the geology, and you can uh, <laughs> bring the nerd to it.
1: <laughs> that That is... I think still part of the (laughs) tagline in some ways of our show, right?
0: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Oh, man. And look at this. I even picked a math fun paper.
1: (laughs) Which means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. (laughs) Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Funny (laughs) Problems.
0: (laughs) This is a cool paper to keep on hand. (laughs)
1: It is. They're brain twister type problems, some more so than others. Uh, They reminded me of car talk puzzlers.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I could see that.
1: And a few of them, I can already hear one of the brothers going, (laughs) bo
0: Yeah, I skipped through a couple of them. Um, But yeah. It's just a cool little paper written by a person at the University of New Mexico (laughs) back in the late 90s.
1: Right. And they said the point of this is not to have hard problems necessarily, but to show different ways of approaching problems.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, And
1: also, depending on your browser, the typesetting of this PDF is awful <laughs> uh, in in safari for example the letters squish together and run over each other
0: oh, i hate it when that happens yeah yeah and that could actually interfere with some of the graphics
1: i guess <laughs> so like one of them is a man weighs the following weights on the following dates mm-hmm. and i'll shorten the dates just to say the day of the month the first 150 pounds, third zero pounds, fifth <laughs> 25 pounds, seventh zero pounds, ninth 145 pounds. How is this possible?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the answer is he's an astronaut, he went to the moon and back.
1: <laughs> yep, because the moon's gravity is about a sixth that of Earth's, so 150 zero weightless in the journey, 25 zero and 145
0: (laughs) so i'll confess that logic problems aren't my favorite thing and it's like chess i feel like it's something that i should be really good at and really enjoy and it's actually like something that bothers me an inordinate amount both chess and logic problems is that i'm not super great at either of them
1: (laughs) hmm okay
0: yeah, mm-hmm. so some of these are, I don't know, they're giving me like PTSD back to gifted and talented classes where I'm like, why am I not good at this?
1: <laughs> it reminded me somewhat of the, um, oh, the, the GRE problems.
0: Right, yeah, and that's the kind of stuff that like, I'm just, I'm not good at those kind of math logic problems. Yeah, agreed. So like, one is when is it possible to have one plus one equal 10 in base two? There you go.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm.
0: But this is the logic one I can get behind. How can we have 10 divided by 2 equal to 0? 10 cookies divided by 2 kids. Nothing remains. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. So I thought that one was pretty funny.
1: I liked the, from two false hypotheses, hypotheses get a true statement. And you can make up your own. Uh, the... One in the paper. And they've got a couple. Is uh, grass is edible? False. Well, okay, arguably false. Um, edible things are green. False. <laughs> I can think of green things that are not edible. Yeah. <laughs> Therefore, grass is green. True. Oh yeah. I like
0: this. Mm hmm. I like it. All dogs are poodles. False. Spot is a dog. False. Thus, spot is a poodle. True. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I like that.
1: Uh, Let's see.
0: I do love... Um, I love the one right after this, too, mm because I think this is funny. This seems to me like the kind of logic problems I could get behind, right? Uh, How can you add three with three and get eight? turn one of the threes around and put them together to make it right (laughs) yeah that's good (laughs) um wire manhole covers around (laughs) uh i
1: was just about to say this one
0: (laughs) (laughs) this was the first one i read when i got this i was like oh yeah that i mean that makes it sense right because the circle can't fall inside of itself yeah. Right. So, so a square
1: you, or anything yeah. else, you can turn it in some orientation where it can fit through itself, but you can't with a circle.
0: Yeah, that's great. That makes total sense.
1: Um, <laughs> this one is a physics one oh one problem, but you have a cannon and two identical cannonballs, you level the cannon, you fire it, and at the instant you fire it, you drop one of the cannonballs from the same height, which cannonball hits the ground first.
0: Oh, um, yeah, they both do, because it doesn't matter what you're dropping, right?
1: Well, it doesn't matter the horizontal velocity. <laughs> no,
0: it doesn't matter the horizontal velocity, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: They both yeah. fall at the same rate, so yeah. how fast you fire it, how far you fire it, doesn't matter. hmm um, Yeah. It's sort of like the the problem of uh, you're trying to hit a monkey in a tree with a cannon. Mm-hmm. When you fire the cannon, it scares the monkey, and he lets go. Where do you aim? Mm-hmm. You aim at the money at the monkey because the monkey and the cannonball will fall at the same rate. Yeah, there you go. Yeah.
0: There you go. What is a hungry man's multiplication factor? Eight by eight. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that one was dumb.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh-huh. Um this one is real great. I love this. These are, There are two 24 by 24 corrals. In each corral, there are six steers. <laughs> yeah. The farmer expects to produce a calf from each steer. So how many calves will be produced? None. Steers can't produce calves.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> oh, that was great. <laughs> uh, um,
1: yeah. Let's see. Uh, 15 hunters went bear hunting. One killed two bears. <sighs> how many bears have one killed?
0: Who, because one is the name of one of the hunters <laughs> right because it's
1: capitalized in the sentence it's a big hint
0: mm-hmm. there you go yeah
1: <laughs> so uh <laughs> you can go through this paper and find some of your own uh, little brain teasers but it's kind of fun because these are the types of problems that when they present them to folks with phds and preschoolers we get owned
0: Yeah, see, exactly. Something I feel I should be good at, but I'm not. Yes. (laughs) Well, on that note.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Shannon, if folks have their own puzzler to stump us with, how can they get a hold of us?
0: That shouldn't be hard. Uh, Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. Uh, You can find us in the Slack chat room sometimes when we sit down long enough to uh, get on there. And then also you can find us on Patreon. So thank you for supporting us. We've got some good interviews coming up. Thanks to your support. You can find us there and support us there. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo.
1: And even though folks listen to our radio show and say, I wonder what those windbags fruit number is up to this time. <laughs> Until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.